We're in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to remind you again that we're in the middle where we left off last week of section uh, chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Let me read that to you again and then as we move forward we're going to actually get into the rest of chapter 2. My prayer is that we'll actually finish chapter 2 tonight. We'll see what happens. Don't hold your breath and don't, well you can place all the bets you want, but um, don't bet that we will. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. In Him, Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, last week we dealt with the circumcision that we've received, not by hands, but by the Spirit of God, where he put away our flesh when he saved us. We also, at the very end of our time, dealt with the fact that God, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Those two things that Paul talks about here, we already dealt with. But what we're going to deal with tonight are the rest of the things that he brings out in here, because there's some wonderful pictures that he's giving of what really occurred when we were saved. The next one we're going to look at here is how he has forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, the interesting thing is, if you ask most Christians... When you got saved, did God forgive you all of your sins, past, present, and future? What would they say? Yes. They would say yes. But if you then say to them, show me in the Bible where it says that, most Christians would go, um, I just kind of assumed that was the case. I hope it's the case. <laughs> well, let me take you tonight to some passages that show that he has forgiven us all our trespasses. All right, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, which is what Adam and Eve did, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, which is what Jesus did, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. We're going to deal with that a little bit later tonight. Why in the world did God give us the law so people would sin more? We'll deal with that later tonight. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul here is saying, look, because of one man's sin, everybody has sinned now. It's passed to all of us. In the same way now, because of one man's righteousness, righteousness is available now to everyone. All right. By the way, how did you get sin? How did you get this sin problem? How did you, how did you end up with this condition called sin? You were born into this world as a human, right? It was passed on from human to human to human to human. That's, by the way, very important why we understand and believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. He wasn't made by two human beings. If he was, if Jesus was just a man made by two human beings, guess what? The Bible says that sin would have passed on to him and he wouldn't have been without sin. He couldn't have been that perfect sacrifice. That's why God himself put him into Mary. Go ahead. Is that familiar spirit? I mean, how that came down? 
What do you mean by uh, how what came down? Uh, just simply, it was passed on through the flesh, the Bible says. It, that's all. It just was passed on through the flesh. That's why he wasn't born of the flesh. He was born of man, but also of God. And that's why he wasn't passed on to Jesus. He was born without sin. Now, let me just say real quick. There are, there's a doctrine in the Roman Catholic denomination, if you will, that teaches that the uh, virgin birth was that Mary was born without sin. The Immaculate Conception. They teach that Mary was born without sin. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. It was that Jesus was born without sin. You see, actually, Jesus, Mary herself in the Magnificat cries out and says, My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Savior. Mary needed a Savior just as much as we all do. Mary's a godly woman and she's to be praised for her obedience to the Father, but she's not to be worshipped because she's not God and she had sin just like us. The Immaculate Conception was Jesus himself. Okay? It's very important that you understand what the Bible teaches, not what has been passed on by man in tradition. Because a lot of things that many people believe have been passed on by man in tradition and not the Word of God. You're going to see that tonight. I'm actually going to show you from this passage that we get into tonight that actually there's a lot of things you even have believed that really didn't line up with the Scripture. But it was just passed on to you by the church and you believed it and acted on it. And you'd even, you're going to have a bellyache today on some of the things I show you that aren't really in the Bible. But you know that they're of God. So stick with us. All right. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Just as sin from, came from one man, righteousness for all comes through one man, Jesus. It has, has to be received by faith, though. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Look at what it says. In Him, in Jesus, we have, past tense, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. By the way... Does anybody remember what we just read in Romans 5? Here it says, according to the his riches of His grace. In Romans 5 we said, as sin increased all the more, what did grace do? Grace increased even more to cover it. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus forgave the sins you committed prior to when you trusted Him, but now you still need forgiveness for the sins after that. No, 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 no. His grace covers even the sins you do after salvation. He died for all, once for all. Don't think that you need to go get saved again. The Bible doesn't teach that. Don't think that you need to go get your sins forgiven that you've committed. No, no. We're going to talk about that later on. There's this process of sanctification where the Spirit of God makes us more and more like Jesus. And we're going to deal with later on, we may not even get there tonight, that there's a misunderstanding when it comes to forgiveness after salvation. The Bible says you've been forgiven of all your sins, correct? But how many of us still feel like we need to get forgiven for what we just did today? Right? We still do. <laughs> We won't have time tonight to get into that, but we're going to come back later on to deal with that because the Bible talks about confession. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to have to take a time later on to show you that that passage is not saying, oh, Lord, I just did this. Would you please forgive me? It's actually understanding that the forgiveness that you've already been given through Jesus Christ covers all your sins. And when you sin after salvation, your confession is not telling God what you've done in the hopes that he'll wash you. Your confession is agreeing with him and receiving the fact that he's already forgiven those sins you just committed. And there's a big difference. Confession does not start with us. Confession starts with God. And all we do is agree with Him and receive the forgiveness that has already been given to us through Jesus and His death. That's a wonderful whole thing I'd love to get into, but we don't have time for that tonight. So let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1. 
David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. By the way, is that sin a singular or a plural? It's plural. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Your sin problem has been taken care of. Go to the book of Job. Back up one book. You're in the book of Job. Folks, if you want to see the gospel in the Old Testament, you want to see one of the best preaching of the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus, look at Job 33, verses 22 through 28. Elihu is speaking. And he's talking about how God speaks in many different ways. And he does this to accomplish what he starts to talk about in verse 22. His soul, this sinner, his soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his faith with, face with a shout of joy, and he restores man to his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Isn't that awesome? God gets, is trying to get a hold of man to show him that you've got a sin problem and you're about to die because of it. But there's a mediator. And that mediator speaks to the father and says, don't have him go to the pit. I've paid a ransom for him. And that man says, I, did, I sinned. I didn't do what was right, but it wasn't repaid to me. And he's restored. That's the gospel, folks. In the book of Job. Well, if you sin, then you... The You've committed, if you commit one sin, you've committed them all. That's true. So he's saying basically they're all covered. <laughs> they are all covered. I'm glad you're bringing that out. James chapter 2 verse 10 says you're able to keep all of God's law, yet stumble at just one point. You're guilty as if you broke them all. So don't think, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I actually read a book and this one pastor was teaching on this whole idea of all of our sins being forgiven. And he said his own wife, when he got home one night after teaching on this, said to him, I'm still struggling with this. I understand that when I trusted him as my Savior, he's forgiven my sin up to that point. But he's covered even the ones I'm going to do tomorrow. And the pastor looked at his wife and said, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how many of them at that time were still future? <laughs> All of them. Just because you trusted him in 1973 like me or whatever year it was, he died before that and he paid for all of your sins and they were all future at the time. Correct? Then as much as we like to say that we believe Jesus taken away all of our trespasses, let the truth of it really sink in. Because many of us still struggle with condemnation when we still sin. Correct? Even though Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, for, yeah, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at what he says. He says, but when we were saved, we were washed with the regeneration and renewal of what? The Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about what happens to believers? I'm going to ask you it this way. When the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers at the moment they are saved, does he come and go? No. He stays forever. You've been sealed by God through the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says. So if we have been saved and washed and made new through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and he never leaves... Guess what? All your sins have already been covered. They've already been removed. You've been forgiven of all your sins, even the ones tomorrow. Isn't that amazing? Because of his righteousness, we're righteous. But you're jumping way ahead. We'll get there. I understand you probably think we'll never get there, but we're going to get there. Let me show you something else. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. Not only um, has he forgiven us all our trespasses, Paul also says here, that he took our sins and he nailed them to the cross with him. Look at what it says here. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, when a criminal was crucified, they wrote down the criminal's crimes on a tablet and nailed it to the cross with the criminal. So as people passed by, they could see what the person was being punished for. Paul used this picture and he said, everything that was held against us, all the legal demands and the debt we had because of our sin, it was all nailed to the cross with him. He took all of our sin. It's interesting, though, as you look back and you read through the story of what was nailed on the cross on that tablet with Jesus. What, 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 what was on there? King of the Jews. And what did the, what did the Jews say? They said, no, 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 put on there. He said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Now, let me just give you a little history lesson that might help you with what's going on. See, a lot of times we don't understand fully what's going on with Pilate and, Jew and, his, and the Jews and their interactions because we really don't know much about Pilate except for what we read in the Gospels, right? It's the only time we really know anything about him. He looks kind of wishy-washy to us, doesn't he? But actually, if you do a little historical study, and there's plenty of stuff out there that tells you, Pilate actually wasn't very wishy-washy. And the reason why Pilate was kind of in the position he was in when they came to him and said, if you don't kill this guy, you're no friend to Caesar, is Pilate actually had been a jerk to the Jews, so much so that he kept getting in trouble with his higher-ups in Rome. You see, the previous guys that were in charge in Rome, sorry, in, in, in Jerusalem, they understood that the Jews didn't believe in any idols or anything like that. And so whenever they would march in, they used to have these figurines, if you will, on the top of their flagpoles and stuff. And previous guys prior to Pilate had taken them off. In, out of respect to the Jews who believed that anything graven image was a, was a bad thing. Pilate, when he came back into power, or when he came into power in Jerusalem, he put them back on. And pretty much said, I don't care what you think. And he was such a jerk in his leadership that the Jews kept going over his head to complain. Well, pretty much he had been told, the next time you have a little insurrection there in Jerusalem, you've lost your job. So then comes this situation with Jesus. 
And the Jews come and say, we're not allowed to kill him because of our law, but you guys are allowed to, the Romans. And uh, Pilate says, as you're going to see a little bit later on tonight, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. And they said, well, if you don't let us do what we need to do and you don't do it, you're no friend to Caesar. In other words, we'll go over your head. And that's why he gave in. And that's why he stuck his feet in the ground a little bit and said, what I've written, I've written. Little did I know he was prophesying. The king of the Jews, the king of kings and the Lord of lords was put to death. Why? Because he was taking the punishment for the sins of all mankind. By the way, don't let anybody deceive you and tell you that Jesus was crucified by the Jews. You did it. I did it. You killed him. I killed him. Yeah, the Jewish people might have been the ones acting with the Romans at that time, but the Bible says that we all, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. Folks, <laughs> Jews didn't kill him. We all did. But he went willingly. All right, look at Hebrews chapter 4 real quick. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible says, So we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, or weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I don't know if that sunk into anybody yet or not. The Bible says that he was tempted in every single way that we are. Has anybody here in this room, are you tempted with everything that there is to be tempted by out there in the world? No, I'm tempted with a lot of stuff, but I'm not tempted by everything. There's some people, things that don't tempt me at all that other people fall prey to all the time. But the Bible said that Jesus, to experience fully what we've gone and to deal with all of our sins, was tempted in every way in which we are, yet without sin. John chapter 18. I, I referenced this just a second ago. Look at John chapter 18. Verses 28 through chapter 19, verse 16. John 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the, so they could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the question was, what accusation do you bring against him? And they didn't answer the question. They just said, uh, well, if he wasn't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. By the way, have you ever noticed as parents that when you ask your kids a specific question and they don't answer it, chances are they're in the wrong? Keep going. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, verse 30, uh, we wouldn't have brought him, delivered him over to you. Pilate, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not law for us, to, uh, for us to put anyone to death. This is what they really wanted. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this to your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then the Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is the tr uh, of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted it together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Is, is he making it pretty clear or what? The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You think you're in charge, Pilate, but you're really not. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Listen to who says this. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The chief priests said, We don't have any king but Caesar. <laughs> Folks, as he went and stood before the guy in charge of declaring him innocent or guilty, over and over and over and over again, he kept saying, I can find no sin. I can find no guilt. I find no reason to have him put to death. I'll beat him up a little bit if that makes you feel better. No, we want him dead. Well, what has he done? Well, if he hadn't done evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. But what has he done? I don't see anything that he's done. Oh, he's claimed to be the son of God. Our law says that he has to be killed because of that. Isn't that interesting? These same people that said that could probably tell you that Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 talks about the Messiah. And in that passage in Isaiah 9, 6, it said, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. What's the next part? Almighty God. The everlasting father, the prince of peace. I was talking with a Jewish man one time and he said, I want to discuss with you about this belief in Jesus, but I don't want you to use the New Testament at all because I don't believe that's God's word. I only want to use the Old Testament. And as we discussed back and forth, one of the things he said to me was nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the Messiah will be God. I said, Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be wonderful, counselor, the almighty God. By the way, interestingly enough, that's the last time I heard back from him as we email, we're emailing back and forth. I pray that he's come to faith, but I don't know. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you know what it says. He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, understand what happened at that moment when Jesus died on the cross. And when you trusted him as your Savior and received what he accomplished, he has circumcised us with a circumcision not done by hands, and he cut away our flesh. Yeah, it's still here, it's still alive and kicking in one sense, but it really has no power over us unless we let it. He has also made us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made spiritually alive through faith in Jesus Christ. On top of that, he has canceled or forgiven us all of our trespasses, and he's not only done that, he's nailed everything that we were held guilty about to the cross with him. He took the full punishment for our sins. Let me say this to you. Some of you still think that God's going to make you pay for some of the things you do after salvation. I've heard too many people over the years as a pastor who tell me, well, the reason my father died is because of my sin. The reason why this happened is because of the things that I've done. Folks, listen, listen, listen. If you think that God will make you pay for some sins after your salvation, you don't believe that Jesus paid the full price. You've got to let this truth sink into us. This is what Paul's writing to Christians. Paul's writing here in Colossians to Christians, and he's saying the reason why you're susceptible to this false teaching, the reason why you're falling prey to all this stuff that people say, well, yeah, okay, you believe in Jesus, but you need this other experience, or you need this other baptism, or you need to have this mystical experience that we've had. Well, the reason they're falling prey to that is because they didn't fully understand all that was accomplished when they got saved. And neither do we. Yeah, we list out. That's, we, not, that's not salvation. Listen, listen, Jim Johnson is still learning all that there is that was given to me when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't need another experience. I need to spend more time in this word. And as we've already been looking at, continue this process of growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all here. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, the father said to the older son in the prodigal son story, he said, my son, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. But the son was trying to earn it. Remember, all these years I've slaved and I've worked for you. I've never disobeyed an order. And the father says, you still think that you've got to be good enough for you to get some of my blessings. They're all yours already. You just have to receive them by faith. This younger son of yours just came back and said, I just need grace. I need mercy and I need grace. And I need forgiveness. And he just came back. And the father's reaction was to throw a party and act like he'd never been gone. Amen. Folks, it's time we Christians understood the fullness of what it is that's been given to us. Oh, there's one last thing I want to show up here from Colossians chapter 2. And then we'll get into the next section. Paul then says he also disarmed or defeated or rendered powerless. Listen, the rulers and authorities. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Look at what he says. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. We're not going to take time to turn there. Remember God makes this prophecy. And for those of you that like the big fancy words or like the seminary class. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. The first preaching of the gospel. The first gospel preaching was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says about the serpent, you are going to bruise the seed of the woman's heel. Listen, and he, singular, will crush your head. Amen. 
By the way, at this moment, Satan doesn't know who the he is. The he's always existed, but he had no idea that this he, who was the son of God, that the God himself manifested as the son, was going to come down to the earth and take on human form. He had no idea at that time. All he knows is some descendant of this woman is going to kill him. So what happens? Eve gives birth to two boys, one named Cain, another one named Abel. One is considered righteous in the eyes of God because of his obedience. Another is considered not righteous because of his lack of faith. And what does Satan do? He says, "Ooh, maybe this is the seed. And he has him killed. By the way, you see this all the way through. Whenever there appears to be one that God seems to have favor on, some descendant, Satan goes after him. Joseph. He was prized over all his brothers. He tries to have him killed. I could go on and on and on. There's this chess match going on between God and Satan. has been for years. It's not until God's son comes down to the earth that Satan now realizes who it is. And that's when he starts to take his time to go after him. But the Bible says at that moment that Jesus died on the cross, he defeated Satan then. And all of his minions... Now, stick with me here because there's a lot for us because of that. Go to John chapter 12. Let me kind of lay out a few more things for you. John chapter 12, look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's he talking about? Satan. Satan. Go to John chapter 16, look at verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he, meaning the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember, Jesus is saying, it's good for you that I go away. Because when I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to come. So after Jesus dies, is in the tomb for three days, actually his body's in the tomb. He himself is already with the Father. I'll explain that to you in just a second. And after he rises from the dead, he goes back to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of their sin. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. And he's going to convict the world of judgment. Because at the moment that Jesus died on the cross... Satan was judged at that time. The ruler of this world at that time was judged. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Did you catch that? That through his death he might destroy and defeat Satan at that time. This is important for a lot of us, so stick with us here. Don't, don't, don't check out just yet. Go back to Colossians. Look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Did you catch that? What was created by Jesus? Everything. But not just everything you can see. Even the stuff you can't see. And when it talks about rulers and dominions and authorities, he's talking about the angelic realm. They were created by him too. We know from the scriptures in our faithful study of it that there was a time where this one angel, I actually believe the Bible teaches that his name was Hellel. There's Gabriel, Michael, and there was another high-ranking angel. If you read Tony Kessinger's book, The Devil is in the Details, you'll see that he shows you that this one word translated to other, uh, into other names, actually in, in the Hebrew, is Hillel. I think it's his name. This angel left his position because of his rebellion, and he took a third of the angels with him. And he has been given a dominion for time of this world. Remember? Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, but because of their sin, who's become the ruler of this world? Satan has. Who's become the power, prince of power of the air? Satan has. But Jesus kept saying, relax, don't worry, pretty soon he's going to be defeated. Pretty soon he's going to be defeated. And he was defeated at the moment of the cross. Now, he has still been, by God, for God's purposes, allowed to do what he's going to do. But even the Bible says he already knows he's defeated because in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the tribulation period, he's going to be cast down to the earth. People say, well, he's already been cast down to the earth. Not yet. The Bible says that he appears before God as an accuser of the brethren every single day. You read the book of Job, it says when the angels all appeared before God and Satan came with him. Why? Because he's still on a leash. He's still a created being. He's still got to check in when they all have to check in. He is still allowed in the presence of God. But there will come a point at the midpoint of the tribulation where he was no longer allowed in the presence of God and he will be cast down to the earth and he will indwell the Antichrist. And the Bible says he's going to be really hard to deal with because he knows that his time is short. Remember when Jesus walked up on this man who had the legion of demons and they all recognized who he was? They, we all saw the physical part of that guy. The demons recognized the spiritual and they knew that, that, that he was God. And they said, uh, we know who you are. <laughs> Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Folks... I'm going to say this to you as nicely as I can and as clear as I can so that you don't abuse this. But stop giving Satan more credit and more authority than he really has. If he has any authority over you, it's because you let him. The devil made me do it. No, I chose to let the devil work through me. The Bible says in James chapter 1 that if we sin, it's because from our own lusts it's conceived. Stop saying, well, I couldn't help it. Satan, no, no, no. He's a defeated foe for all of us who are in Christ. You just chose to. I remember one time as I was pastor, I was counseling with this one man and he had a problem. And I'm just going to be clear without being too clear. He had a sexual addiction. And as I sat there dealing with him and his wife in my office and trying to get this thing fixed. And he was tearing his wife up because of the sins that he was committing because of this. He looked at me and said, I just can't help it. I took him to Galatians chapter 5 where it says in verses 22 and following that one of the evidences of the Spirit is self-control. The man got angry. 
He goes, are you saying I'm not saved? I said, all I'm saying is that if you are saved, you can't say you can't help it because you can. The Spirit of God within you will give you the victory because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen. Satan has power. <clears throat> Satan, you're not to mess with him yourself. I don't want to hear anybody say, I bind you, Satan. The only one that's able to bind him is Jesus himself. The Bible says in James that we're to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he'll leave. It isn't because we walked around claiming the name of Jesus. It's because we back up in humble, humbly into his robe. And he leaves because of him. Uh, there's too many people that say, well, I'm going to bind this and I'm going to bind that in the name of Jesus. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you'll see that even all authority, though all authority has been given to Jesus, he's not exercising full authority at this time, is he? I mean, be honest, if, is Jesus exercising his full authority? Has it been given to him? But for his reasons, he has not chosen to exercise full authority. Therefore, if Jesus is not exercising full authority, who are we to walk around? Like little rich, spoiled kids thinking that we can claim full authority over Satan if Jesus even isn't exercising full authority. But, and I'll get right to you, at the same time, there's a lot of authority that has already been given and it's already through his being defeated that we just need to believe. Yes, sir. Jude 9. Go ahead. Michael. He didn't even dare bring accusation. He said, the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. Exactly. Too many people are taking some truths of the scriptures and you've been taught some things that don't line up with the Bible. And I hear too many Christians say, well, I bind Satan in this and I bind Satan in that. Folks, are you God? Paul prayed three times that some thorn in his flesh would be removed. And God says, for my purposes, I'm leaving it. Does God heal? Yes. Does God still do miracles? Yes. But any theology that says God can't say no is bad theology. So there's some truths here that we need to understand that Satan has been defeated. He is a defeated foe. Yet for a time, he's been given some rule and some reign, some authority. He's still on a leash and he can only do what the Father lets him. That's why Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you all as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon. Why was Satan asking? Because Peter had become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, Satan cannot touch him now unless he has permission from the Father. What does it say in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? He says that there's no temptation but it sits seized you, what such is common to man. Listen, and God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way for you to escape. Folks, do you understand? He is defeated. He has been defeated at the cross. Jesus did it then and there. But... Any victory we have is through faith in what he's already promised us and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, let me read it to you real quick. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verses 10 and following. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in who? In the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. Put on the whole armor of who? Of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, and having done all, to stand firm. You see it? Don't run around like a rich, spoiled kid saying, my daddy's so-and-so, and I get to do what I want. That's not how it works. 
But don't lose sight of the fact that because of the fact that the God is your father and that your enemy is a defeated foe, as long as you rely and rest in God, Satan has no authority over you unless you let him. Do you understand the balance there? Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. A very confusing passage to some people. Hopefully I can be used to help you with a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, now hang on for a second. Look at what it says here. When Jesus died, he was put to death in what part of him? In his flesh. What happened to the spiritual part of Jesus? Of this passage, what happened to the spiritual part of Jesus when he was crucified? He went and did what? It was made alive and he did what? He went and proclaimed to the spirits who are in prison. Now stick with me here for a second. Many of us have been taught that the moment Jesus died, he went into the tomb and he suffered in hell for three days. A lot of us have been taught that because the Apostles' Creed actually said that he died, was in hell for three days, and then he rose from the dead. You've got to believe what you believe, not because of man's tradition, not because of what you've been taught, but because of the whole of the scriptures. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross when the thief said, Lord, when you remember me when you go into your kingdom? What did the Jesus say to him? Today. When? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, dude, I'll be right back. I got three days in hell to deal with. <laughs> Not only that, what did he cry out on the cross? It is, it finished. is finished. It is paid for. Not, I got to pay for it for three more days, and then it'll be done. It was done at that moment. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, he went during that time and he proclaimed victory. He went to the, the abode of the dead where the demons that are in captivity. There were a bunch who left their position in Genesis chapter 6. And then they were put in prison until the appointed time. And he went to the abode of the dead and he proclaimed victory. But he didn't go suffer in hell for three days. Too many people have taken this passage and said that that proves that he was in hell. No, it just says that he went alive and preached victory to the spirits that were in prison. He disarmed them and he put them to death. Go ahead. Oh. I'm sorry, it's down here. I thought your voice sounded like it was coming from back there. To there. So go ahead. Our concept, I think what most people think of, the mm -hmm. concept of hell, mm -hmm. is totally different than what is being actually taught in the Bible. Agreed. You know, it, Hades is... It's a fiery place of torment. For those who are apart from Christ, right? Well, it's, different than, it's different than what happens in Revelation. Agreed. Oh, no, no. Yeah. The lake of fire is a different place. The Bible actually says in Revelation chapter 20 that, that at the time of the final judgment of all the wicked, those who are in Hades are going to come up out of Hades, stand before the great white throne judgment, and then they're going to be cast into a different place called the lake of fire. Yeah, Even though there is a fiery torment in Hades, it's not the eternal abode. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. It's all put there. Now, here's the whole thing. Those people that are apart from Christ that are in torment right now aren't in the final hell. Right. They're in a place of torment until the final hell. Now, let me just deal with something real quick. I just feel like God wants me to do this real quick. 
Some of you deal with Christians who say, I really struggle with the whole fact that hell is eternal and that God has people pay for sins for eternity. And maybe some of you in this room struggle with that as well. And you say, well, how could a loving God make someone be punished forever and ever and ever? And some people fall prey to the teaching that you go to hell for a while and then you're extinguished and you're no more because that makes us feel better or whatever. Listen, the Bible is very clear that hell is eternal. Jesus said it's where the fire doesn't die, nor the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. And it's says he'll be tormented forever and ever and ever those that are there but here's why you'll see it in the story that Jesus tells of the man who's been forgiven of a great debt by his master and he doesn't really receive it because it's proved that immediately after being forgiven this great debt he goes and finds someone that owes him just a pittance in comparison and he won't forgive him and he tells him I'm gonna throw you in jail until you pay me back when the other servants heard what this guy had done, they went back and told the master, hey, this guy that you just forgive this huge debt, he just threw another guy. And that, the story that Jesus tells, which is a picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm, it says, take that man, throw him into jail and heat prison, and he won't get out until he's paid the last penny. By the way, if you go and do the math of what Jesus, the number Jesus used in that story, he literally, if he was doing that story today, would say, the guy owed a gazillion, billion, million. Seriously, it is the most ludicrous number. You can tell that Jesus is using it for hyperbole to show how much this man. It was a number that you'd never, ever, ever pay off. I don't care if you had the best job in the world. But he's cast into prison until he is able to pay it all. By the way, will this man ever pay it off? Even if he had a full-time job, he could never pay it off. But in prison, of all places, he's never going to pay it off. Listen, listen, listen. Hell was not created for us. It was created for Satan because I believe the Bible teaches that Satan's rebellion happened before the creation of the world. Another whole discussion for another time. It was created for Satan and his followers. All who follow him become his followers. But God says, I got good news for the whole world. I have already covered all your sins. It's already forgiven. You have to now receive it by faith. If you receive it, you'll spend eternity with me. If you choose not to receive it, what you're really saying is, I'll pay for my own sins. And Jesus says, good luck with that, because that's going to take forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and you never will pay it off. The reason why hell is eternal is because those who are there have chosen to pay for it themselves instead of receiving what God has already done. That's why hell is eternal they'll never, ever, ever be able to pay it off. What about those who didn't sin as much? Remember James 2.10? If you're able to keep the whole law, you stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Folks, with all this having been said about all this that Jesus has done in him, giving us a circumcision, cutting away our flesh, making us alive, forgiving us of all of our sins, uh, uh, nailing our sins to the cross, all of this, why do we still try to help God clean us up? Because we don't understand. It has been done. Now, let what He has already accomplished and what you've already received begin to become manifest in us in the process that God has that he's calling sanctification or the conforming us into the image of his son. All right, so stop thinking you need to help God to get better. Believe that he's declared you righteous. Now we're going to go into, well, just how do we do this? Well, we're going to deal with that more in chapter three. 
Paul actually gets into the specifics of how we live this out. But what I want to do real quickly here in the time, 10 minutes that we have left, is I want to jump to chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Because of all this, Paul then says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Listen, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because of everything that Paul just laid out, let me say this to you. Anything that you are taught about the Christian life that doesn't focus on Christ in you and you're relying on him to live his life through you and based on the truth of God's written word is false teaching. Amen. I'm going to say it to you one more time. Anything you're taught about the Christian life that doesn't focus on the fact that Christ is already in you they say you need another experience. Watch out for that. That Christ is already in you and, and it doesn't teach you down how to rely on him to live his life through you. Because they start telling you, well, you need to do this and you need to do this. It's kind of teaching that you need to help God. Some of you have been taught that you need to keep certain sacraments in order to be pleasing to God. Sorry, that doesn't line up with the truth of the word. You've already been given righteousness in God. It's not anything we do that helps him get us there. And also, anything that's not based on the truth of God's written word, anything that along those lines is false teaching. If it's not teaching you about Christ already in you and how to let him live his life through you and basing it on the truth of his word, anything else is false teaching. If we consider ourselves, quote unquote, good Christians because we don't do certain things or because we keep certain habits, we've missed the point. I'm not a good Christian because I go to church. I'm not a good Christian because I tithe. I'm not a good Christian because I don't drink. That's not what makes me a good Christian. What makes me a good Christian is the fact that I've been already declared righteous through Jesus Christ and I'm trying to learn to let him live his life through me. Amen. That's what makes me a good Christian. Oh, our sanctification and growth doesn't come from our actions and our efforts but from Christ Jesus himself within us as we yield to him in faith. In Galatians 3.3, Paul puts it this way. He says... Who's bewitched you? After having begun in the spirit, are you trying to perfect yourself in the flesh? Now you say, wait a minute. You want to see how susceptible we already are to this kind of stuff? There was something I read in here today that actually I had never seen in all the years that I grew up as a Christian. Especially being taught by those who were over me in the church. You want to see how susceptible we already have been? Many of us were taught that Sunday was the Sabbath, were we not? Yes. Sunday was the Sabbath. And you were not allowed to do certain things on the Sabbath, correct? What were, help me out. What were some of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath? You weren't allowed to drink? So you're allowed to drink other days but not drink on the Sabbath? Is that what it was? 
You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. What else? You weren't allowed to play golf on the Sabbath. Dance. You can't dance. Yeah, you can. I, I, go ahead. You, Becky was taught you can't go to a restaurant because if you go to a restaurant, you're making somebody else work. And if you're not allowed to work and you go to a restaurant, you've made somebody else work. It's like going to church then, I guess. Yeah, well, like, hey, you're making, <laughs> don't go to church, making the preacher work today. You know, we were, Jeff will tell you, we were taught that we weren't even allowed to read the funny papers at least till after church. Right. But by the way, the Sunday ones were the color ones. They were the best ones. <laughs> but you weren't allowed to read those till after you've been to church. And in the afternoon, we were allowed to play as long as it was board games and they were quiet. Look at what the scripture says. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. By the way, if you go back to Romans 14, you'll see that Paul says, look, one considers every day alike. Another one considers one more sacred than another. Each needs to be believing what you believe according to the scriptures. And we're not to be judging each other and whether or not. I remember I was actually my dad was a pastor in church up in New Hampshire and I actually worked at a grocery store for three years when I was in high school. And one Sunday, I actually had to go to work. They scheduled me. And they had never scheduled me because I always asked, I want to be able to go to church with my family. Please don't schedule me on Sundays. But it just happened this one schedule. One Sunday, they scheduled me. So I went to work. And it was so funny. I was bagging groceries. And this lady was coming through the line. And she recognized me. And she knew my dad was the preacher. And she said, what are you doing working on a Sabbath? And I was in the middle of bagging her groceries. So I started taking them out of the bag. I said, I shouldn't be doing this. She goes, what are you doing? She goes, bag mine. But let's be honest, folks. Many of us still struggle a little bit with hitting a golf ball on Sunday. Or going to a restaurant. Some of us are still angry about the fact that businesses have opened on Sunday. Let me read to you something from A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. Well, what does it mean, Jim, to keep it, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy then? Who was that instruction to? Jews. It was to the nation of Israel. That was written to the Jews. Now, the, and remember, Jesus came and, he, and the Jews' mind kept breaking all the Sabbath rules. Right. And Jesus said the Sabbath wasn't made for the Sabbath. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, you think that we're supposed to be fulfilling all these Sabbath rules. The Sabbath was something God gave us as a principle of rest. And it was something the Jews were to keep. It wasn't for the church and never was for the church. There's a wonderful principle of having a day of rest, but we're not under any rules and regulations of having to keep a Sabbath. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Pursuit of God, and then we'll wrap up with this. He says, a concomitant of the error which we have been discussing is the sacred secular antithesis as applied to places. Let me stick with you here and help you out catch you up. In the middle of this chapter, he's been dealing with this wrong concept that we have that some things are sacred and some things are secular. We think that if you are reading your Bible, that's a sacred thing to do. If you're bagging groceries, that's a secular thing to do. All right. The Bible teaches that everything we are doing, whether we eat or drink, we're to be doing it as a sacred thing to the Lord. Correct. So there really isn't any such thing as a sacred thing or a secular thing. Everything, if you do it to the Lord, is sacred. He's, he said, a concomitant of the error which we have been discussing is the sacred secular antithesis as applied to places. It is little short of astonishing that we can read the New Testament and still believe in the inherent sacredness of some places. 
This error is so widespread that one feels all alone when he tries to combat it. It has acted as a kind of dye to color the thinking of religious persons and has colored the eyes as well, uh, the eyes as well so that it is all but impossible to detect its fallacy. In the face of every New Testament teaching to the contrary, it has been said and sung throughout the centuries and accepted as a part of the Christian message, that which is mostly, mostly is surely not. Only the Quakers, so far as my knowledge goes, have had the perception to see the error and courage to expose it. Here are the facts as I see them, Tozer says. For 400 years, Israel had dwelt in Egypt surrounded by the crassest idolatry. By the hand of Moses, they were brought out at last and started toward the land of promise. The very idea of holiness had been lost to them. To correct this, God began at the bottom. He localized himself in the cloud and fire. And later, when the tabernacle had been built, he dwelt in fiery manifestation in the Holy of Holies. By innumerable distinctions, God taught Israel the difference between holy and unholy. There were holy days, holy vessels, holy garments. There were washings, sacrifices, offerings of many kinds. By these means, Israel learned that God is holy. It was this that he was teaching them, not the holiness of things or places. The holiness of Jehovah was the lesson they must learn. Then came the great day when Christ appeared. Immediately he began to say, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. The Old Testament schooling was over. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened to everyone who would enter in faith. Christ's words were remembered. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Shortly after, Paul took up the cry of liberty and declared all meats clean, every day holy, all places sacred and every act acceptable to God. The sacredness of times and places a half-light necessary to the education of the race passed away before the full sun of spiritual worship. The essential spirituality of worship remained the possession of the church until it was slowly lost with the passing of years. Then the natural legality of fallen hearts of men began to introduce the old distinctions. The church came to observe again days and seasons and times. Certain places were chosen and marked out as holy in a special sense. Differences were observed between one and another day or even place or person. The sacraments were first two, then three, then four, until with the triumph of Romanism, they were fixed at seven. From this bondage, the reformers and Puritans and mystics have labored to free us. Today, the trend in conservative circles is back toward that bondage again. It is said that a horse, after it has been led out of a burning building, will sometimes, by a strange obstinacy, break loose from its rescuer and dash back into the building again to perish in the flame. By some such stubborn tendency toward error, fundamentalism in our day is moving back toward spiritual slavery. The observation of days and times is becoming more and more prominent among us. Lent and Holy Week and Good Friday are words heard more and more frequently upon the lips of gospel Christians. We do not know when we're well off. We're going to come back next week and deal with more of what he's saying here. But let me just say this to you. There's nothing wrong with a Good Friday service. There's something wrong with you judging your brother because they didn't show up at the Good Friday service. Do you understand the difference? There's nothing wrong with worshiping God in ways that you find will help you connect and listen and to grow. But it is wrong when we start judging each other by whether or not, listen, they're wearing the right clothes on Sunday. 
Do we not do that? Do we not think, well, if I were going to meet with the President of the United States, I would dress up. I'm going to meet with God. There, don't we say these things? But you know what? If the President of the United States was my friend and lived with me every day, I don't think I'd have to dress up all the time. And not only that, the Bible says when it comes to this grace that we've been given, take your eyes off of what you think your brother ought to be doing and you live the life that you believe God has for you. And you watch what God does in the midst of uh, his people who are all going to be different and some are going to wear sandals. <laughs> the, un the unintended curse of this is that the world thinks it's okay to show up at Christmas and Easter because those are holy days. Yeah. There's a, lot of un there's a lot, of lot of unintended things that have happened because we've made holy days. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is, when you ask most people who don't know Christ to describe a Christian... They'll say those are the people that don't do those things and do do those things. And they think Christianity is a set of rules. And that's sad that we have painted that picture. Oh, we're going to deal with this some more when we come back next week because there's a lot more here I want to bring out. But for tonight, let's stop and let's pray. Father, Lord, there is a lot we've gotten into tonight. But I thank you that because of your spirit and because of your word, we're able to grasp these things. It's not me who helps people to see it, but it's your word. It's your spirit which lives within us, which gives us understanding. And Father, we, without realizing it, we all have this same problem. This issue that was being dealt with by Paul in the church there at Colossae is nothing new. I mean, it's been happening all along and it will continue even to this day. Lord, help us to see the errors that we've been falling prey to. The teachings that we've been taught, the things we've been believing because they've been told us that's what a good Christian does that have caused us to be susceptible to false teaching. Father, help us to understand, as we're going to deal with next week, what it means to really grow up into him who is you, you, the head, so we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching, by every cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming, but actually that we will actually grow in love for one another in maturity. Father, I, my prayer for tonight as we close is simply this. May we release our brothers and our sisters from the bondages we expected them to live under. Father, keep us from judging our brother or our sister according to things that are not in your word. But they're just really things we believe strongly, so strongly you have to believe them too. Father, there are things that are sin. And your word tells us that those of us who are spiritual are to go to restore them gently with a spirit of, of meekness. But if the Bible doesn't say that it's sin, Father, may we not sin by telling them that it is if they don't see it like we do. And Lord, I know that your word says that when we follow your command to love each other as you have loved us, the world will see that we're your disciples. Lord, thank you for the fact that as messed up as we are, you're still getting your stuff done. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. But Lord, we've missed out on a lot of blessings for us individually because of lies and errors that we've fallen prey to. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this study as we get deeper in our understanding of what's already been done and what it means to walk in you and to rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.